The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, I'm Sif Heider, the founder of Array. I'm a wellness entrepreneur and digital creator, and this is my show, The Dream Bigger Podcast. Listen, I love dreaming big, but you know what I love more? Actually having the resources to make those big dreams happen. And hey, dreams can sometimes be private jets, but other times they can look a little something like having the best skin of your damn life or starting a successful business, or delving into spirituality. So on this podcast, I chat with experts and thought leaders from different fields about their tips and tricks on doing exactly that. So let's get right into it. Hello, hello, friends, and welcome back to another episode of the Dream Bigger Podcast. I am so excited to bring you today's episode because I know that as we kind of go into the new year, a lot of us may have goals when it comes to our finances. So today's guest is Kira McKenzie, who pivoted her career from working in PR, going through an acquisition, and then getting into private equity, which as a woman is a very difficult thing to do because it's a very male-dominated field. But also what's really impressive is that she leveraged everything that she had learned in her career in PR to make herself a very valuable asset in the private equity world. So today's episode is all about how to structure your career, what a pivot really looks like, how to think of investing. If you are someone who is wanting to start investing into new fields, how to go about doing that. Kira is someone I really admire because I've known her for a while now and we're friends and she is someone who has a learner's mindset, which I think is incredibly important. And you'll see that in today's episode where she gives us all really tangible tips on how we can kind of nurture that part of ourselves. And of course, like this episode is just absolutely bursting (laughs) with values. So I'm really excited to bring it to you. Before we dive in, I want to bring you this week's review, which comes to us from Mandy Sichter. And she says, I love how well thought out each episode is the impressive attention to detail for every topic and how she dives deep into all possible questions for someone who would be completely new to the topic of discussion. The huge array of guests that come on are from all walks of life and there is hardly ever a dull moment. I've been introduced to so many brilliant women through our episodes, and I can't express how nourished my mind feels once I'm done listening. Everyone needs to sit down with a pen and paper for Sif's brilliant solo episodes. They're my personal favorites that I eagerly wait for. Life is hard to navigate as is, and these episodes enrich the mind and soul. She's always so kind to all of her listeners and takes feedback and questions from her followers for each guest. Keep spreading the positivity and light. This is such a sweet review. Thank you so much, Mandy. This honestly means the world to me. Actually, if you're listening and hear this, can you send me a DM on Instagram? Because I would love to send you something as a thank you for this very thoughtful and kind review. You guys, if you have a couple of moments, I would so appreciate if you took a second to rate and review the podcast. All you have to do is open up the Apple podcast app, scroll down to where it says rate and review the show. And in the rating section, if you feel like I've earned it, please leave me a five-star rating. And in the review section, Honestly, tell me any feedback you want me to hear, whether it's good, whether it's requests for future guests, topics that you're really loving, more of something I should do, whatever it is, I want to hear from you because hearing from you allows me to continue to evolve and improve as a podcast host, which is exactly what I want to deliver to you guys. So 
With that, let's welcome Kira to the Dream Bigger podcast. Okay, so I want to talk about working in PR before getting into private equity. What was that like? And how did you even get your start in PR? Yeah, so at the time I was living in San Diego. And while sort of this industry was blowing up, I would say around like earned media, because the way that you did PR in the in the past, it's so different from even how we did PR 10 years ago. Oh, totally. So that sort of space was becoming more digitized. And I think that's what really intrigued me about it. I've always been obsessed with like the consumer and consumer psychology and consumer behavior, even when I didn't know what that meant. I think I was just always the ultimate consumer. So I like gravitated towards storytelling and those types of more marketing top of funnel Mm -hmm. initiatives. I always wanted to be a lawyer before I got into PR. So I was studying to go to law school. At the time, I was living in the UK with an ex-boyfriend of mine. And I came back for, I don't even know, like three months or something just to stay in San Diego with my family. And Mm -hmm. I was like, my dad needs me to have an internship. I know he's going to need me to, to be preoccupied. So I was looking up opportunities kind of like on my flight back from Heathrow. And this popped up for a company called Covet. And something about it just caught my attention. I think it was the fact that they worked with consumer brands. I was already that like ultimate consumer. I feel like I had the mindset in terms of like storytelling. Mm -hmm. So long story short, applied for the position, got the position, started as an intern as the second employee, which is wild. And then worked my way up, obviously, until we ultimately sold that to a private equity firm. And that was sort of the that was the catalyst, I would say, for moving me into private equity just as a category. I really love that you were one of the earlier employees at Covet because I think one of the best ways to kind of build wealth is to take a bet on a startup early and like structure your comps package accordingly. And I know that you've done, I believe, a TikTok's on something along these lines. So can you go into it about how you can be strategic when you're an early, like an early team member? Oh my gosh, yes. I mean, I think truthfully speaking, like these are learned experiences in the sense that like, this was so early for me. This Mm -hmm. was so early for the founder of Covet that being strategic that early on was like candidly not on my mind. In retrospect, the things I wish I knew, I could drown in them. I think in terms of like starting off as an early employee, the first step is making sure that you're insanely passionate about what you're building because ultimately you're going to be building it alongside the founder for as long as that period is. For me, it was kind of like at the time I could see myself being the CEO of Covet. Like that could be my end goal. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what gave me the stamina in order to be able to like continue to stay there for so long and go through each iteration of the company. In terms of like structuring your comps package, For me, it was truthfully luck, if I'm being totally honest. But being candid in early conversations with founders that, especially a founder that's never been a founder before, and saying, not only am I, you know, taking a risk on this company, on the idea, on you, but I'm going to pour my blood, sweat, and tears into this business. And if that is going to make sense for me long term, then in additional, in addition to, you know, your cash package then you would also want to probably negotiate some equity compensation. And I think that this will sort of vary because the agency that I worked with is not the type of agency that would eventually like IPO, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So you're not necessarily talking about options in a public market. You're more so talking about like 
equity stake at the early stage of a company, knowing that you're going to be bringing on future investors and then those equity options are going to shift over Mm -hmm. time. And then you'll have opportunities at second or third pops, which Mm -hmm. is what we like to call them. So making sure that you're not only set up in the beginning with the structure and the compensation package that makes sense for the next three years, but thinking about a 10-year life cycle of that company and ultimately where they're going to go, how they're going to liquidate, and then making sure that your package is consistently updated in order to accommodate those sort of like developments in the company. I love that you share this because, you know, I think early team members really make or break a team. And I think it's one of the most strategic ways to go about, you know, actually getting your worth and like having that be reflected in the work that you do as an early stage kind of uh, employee. You know what I mean? So I think like it's really important for early stage team members to even know that this stuff exists and that, you know, they should be having these conversations. That it's even like an option, I feel like. And I think that it's a very, it's also a different world now than it was 10 years ago. I feel Mm -hmm. like founders now are prepared for that conversation. They're prepared to say, you're incredible talent. I know you're going to grow this alongside me. I want to incentivize you long term. And candidly, now from an investor's perspective, when we look at companies and their team members, their core team is incentivized with equity it's a positive from our perspective. We don't see it as, you know, people cluttering the cap cap table. It's really about like your team is built and incentivized to stay on long term, which takes a lot of the risk out of the investment from my standpoint. Yeah, I completely agree. You guys, since it's around the holidays, tell me if this is just me, but I bet you it's not. I have been baking like a mad woman, okay? I want my house to smell like baked goods at all times, and I want it to be so yummy. But at the same time, I'm still focusing on health, okay? We are in our healthy girl era, and let's be real, making sugary cakes, you know, every week is probably not the best idea for our blood glucose levels. So... I have been obsessed with Stellar Eats. They have grain-free baking mixes made with eight or less real ingredients like almonds, coconut, and dates. And my personal favorite is their carrot cake mix. My God, this thing is unbelievable. I made it over the weekend and Nish was losing his mind. We both love carrot cake. And this was such a good carrot cake, but it wasn't like it wasn't bad for you, you know? They also have mixes like banana bread, coffee cake, and they're all there's a lot of them are also gluten free, paleo friendly and naturally sweetened with coconut and date sugars. I personally could not believe how clean it was. The taste and texture are incredible. They taste just like traditional slash conventional treats, but they're actually not bad for you at all. They're very good for you. It was started by three women who were frustrated with diet culture and how healthy eating is made all about how you look, not about how you feel or how good the food tastes. Okay, so they were on a mission to change the way wellness brands speak to consumers with their brand, which is something that you guys know. I'm a wellness brand founder myself, and it's something that just is so close to my heart. So 
I love this brand. I cannot recommend this brand more, especially around the holidays. Like I'd heard about it in the past. And so when I tried it myself, I was kind of blown away. So we have an offer for you guys. Visit StellarEats.com and use code DREAMBIGGER at checkout for 20% off your first purchase. That's S-T-E-L-L-A-R-E-A-T-S.com and use code DREAMBIGGER for 20% off your first order. Stellar Eats is also available at Whole Foods stores nationwide. Enjoy. Hey, I'm Molly Sims. And I'm Emma Shagormley. We are two best friends with one common obsession. Beauty. And by that, we mean everything that makes you look and feel beautiful. We tried it all and we've got your back. We'll be calling on all our favorite health experts, industry insiders, and friends to answer all your beauty questions. Consider us your beauty 411 and sometimes your 911. From how to fix brassy hair to the pros and cons of laser facials and always with a cocktail in hand. Always. So be prepared to be obsessed. Check out Lipstick on the Rim wherever you get your podcasts. Talk to us about the process of going through an acquisition. What was that like? At what stage did this happen? Tell us everything. Oh my gosh, yes. So the first acquisition that we went through was when Covet was acquired by Power Digital, which is a marketing agency sort of enterprise level, also based in San Diego. And I like to call the opportunity like opportunistic, if you will, because it was not a banked process. It was not sort of premeditated in that sense. It was really like Power was in the business of doing single channel acquisitions, which at their scale of company is a really great way to sort of like inflate growth Mm -hmm. and ultimately drive EBITDA. But from our standpoint, we were, you know, a 35, 40 person company that had, you know, gone through growth pains to reach that scale that was joining another firm with 150 employees. So at the time, I would say like truthfully, that felt like the most That felt like the most cataclysmic sort of acquisition that we had out of the two, just because that agency was focused on 15 different marketing channels and PR was one of them. For us, PR and the extension of PR, which I can get into of like influencer marketing and affiliate and experiential and partnerships and all that jazz, like that was our whole world. And I think that there was like a growth cycle of understanding how top of funnel fits into the larger marketing funnel Mm -hmm. that needed to happen across 40 people for that acquisition to be successful. So it's not only like integrating within like personalities and what have you, but it's also like taking the understanding that these people who've been working full funnel already have while also educating them on the power and benefits of PR holistically done properly. Mm -hmm. And I think, I mean, any acquisition, you're going to have these challenges, but it was remarkably positive. I will say I feel very, very lucky. And I think that that's also like when you have the right partner, that's how it ends up working out. Mm -hmm. But the integration of like human and idea and then the full scope of like what you're building together, getting everyone on the same train is really, really difficult. The second acquisition is we once we were at Power, so Power mm-hmm. was already owned by a private equity firm right? called Periscope. And this is like full candor, but I was not, I was not clued in to like the private equity landscape at the time. 
So when we were acquired by Power, we understood that we had to hit certain KPIs, but there wasn't necessarily across the team an understanding of where that directive came from. And ultimately, that's coming from the private equity firm that owns the agency that's looking to exit that agency to another partner, whether that be a strategic or a financial sponsor or eventual IPO. So Periscope is looking to build a company alongside Power Digital and vice versa that can reach excuse me, that three to five X in three to five years or whatever they're underwriting. And we were on that timeline. And I think that the education that's required to like take somebody who's marketing brain and then bring them up to speed on like the financial components and even just understanding that like the whole world we live in, everything we touch, everything we breathe, everything we eat, everything we do ultimately ladders back to like really the private equity markets. And ultimately, how does that impact how those brands need to scale, Mm -hmm. which is the eventual impact, you know, that trickles down to the consumer? It's honestly quite mind blowing. So I think there are some people that get that. And there are some people that it's just like it's it's harder for them to wrap their head around or they don't want to. So when this started happening and, you know, like you weren't necessarily clued in, how did you start to learn and kind of like expand your knowledge base? Because, you know, eventually, obviously, you did transition into private equity. Yeah. So how did that curiosity and how did that like, I guess, like execution even come into play? I think once I started to realize the power that the money side had, uh-huh whether that was influence or whether that was how companies scale and grow or whether that was how I'll, like I as a consumer would walk through a store and engage with a brand, that was when it really turned on for me. I was super curious about ways that I could not only impact like consumer purchasing behavior, but also if I could have some control over how the money was actually being funneled, then ultimately, like truthfully, you have control over... Mm-hmm the future of whatever market your mandate is within, which is, I mean, not to make myself sound like a Disney villain, but it's like you have the ultimate control over how the consumer behaves and what they have options to even access. Mm -hmm. And then once I started getting a little bit further, I mean, this was obviously like all happening in my brain when we were going through the sale from Periscope to Court Square. And that was a formal banked process. And there were, you know, at the time the agency was about, I want to say, 400 or so. Mm -hmm. And there were only 10 of us working on that process. So it was like a very streamlined team. It was extremely in-depth. We were pitching everybody from private equity firms to strategic acquirers. And it was was extremely eye-opening. But during that process, I think I started to understand the people on the other side of the table, they don't understand what they're buying as intimately as obviously I did because I was in it. And I started to realize again that like when you look at the consumer landscape, the majority of investors have cut their teeth through investment banking or through business school or what have you, which is amazing. And you absolutely require that background in some realms within private equity. I think what I felt was lacking on the other side of the table was an understanding of the consumer and of brand and of strategy And not necessarily even just marketing in and of itself, but you know that gut feeling when you like know an industry like the back of your hand, it just didn't exist. And they all, there was like a, it was almost homogenous, Mm -hmm. I would say, amongst like who the buyer was. Yeah. And the seller was so diverse. I felt like in order for the marketplace to be fair, you needed to have a more diverse buyer set in order to service a more diverse seller, which ultimately 
services an increasingly diverse consumer. I love that you say that. And just for our audience who may not know, what what is private equity and what is the difference between private equity and a venture capital? Yeah. So venture capital is a subset of private equity. Mm-hmm. Private equity is basically like when you look at when you look at public markets, it's the antithesis of that. So when a company IPOs, they become a public asset. You can buy their stock, you can trade it, et cetera. Before companies are public, they're private. And usually when they're private, they're not entirely self-funded meaning they have private equity partners who invest in the company at different scale and sort of size along the way. Venture capital is, I like to describe as sort of being like that first kind of like third of the private equity sector. It's like your, I don't want to butcher this because there are venture capital firms that go earlier and later, but it could be your seed, pre-seed, all the way up to your, you know, series B or beyond. Mm-hmm. Where I sit is sort of like in the middle third, which is growth equity. And that's sort of like a, I like to call it the best of both worlds between like venture capital and traditional private equity or or buyout. Um, And that's sort of like your series A to like C plus. We're really operating within businesses that have 10 million trailing revenue. Our check size is closer to seven to 10, et cetera. So that's like the middle market, I would say. And then traditional private equity is that like later stage or majority buyout. And that's kind of how the industry is structured. But holistically, private equity accounts for all of those different categories. So when when all of this was happening, how did you leverage the skill sets that you had to get a seat at the table in private equity? Because, you know, private equity historically and just like big finance, if you will, is typically very male dominated. And as you said, they all come from like very like business school backgrounds and, you know, investment banking. And I think it's really interesting that you kind of leveraged everything that you learned in PR as like a brand marketer and just like someone who's able to like speak to the consumer and take your skills and take it to private equity, which, by the way, I have to say, so important. So for anyone who's wanting to kind of like leverage their career to kind of do a little bit of like a shift. Yeah, pivot. Yeah, pivot. What what advice can you give and just share your own personal experience? Yeah, I'm all for a pivot. I think it's kind of like any industry benefits when you look at it from the macro perspective, from an outsider's perspective. And that was the way that I sort of approached this transition. I think I got really lucky in the sense that like when I was looking to transition into private equity, I had a friend who was already in that space Mm -hmm. who could sort of like guide me Mm -hmm. through the process. But from my standpoint, I mean, I have imposter syndrome every day that like my background is not a traditional investor's background. But I have to remind myself that the positive of that, the flip side, is that it gives me a different perspective Mm -hmm. and that makes me more powerful in different situations. So I think part of it is like understanding what your strengths are and understanding what your where your passions lie. Yeah. And then once you have an idea of like those sort of baseline characteristics, then you can look at the industry and say, great, I know I'm passionate about this industry. I know I have these core strengths. How can I apply it in order to A, maximize my output, but also add value in a way that's super differentiated to a category that might otherwise struggle to be able to access that viewpoint. 
I, I, yeah, this is such a good answer. When you were going into like this whole field, how, like, how did you start to learn about all things that maybe you weren't familiar with, you know, which is yeah. like a pretty heavy, hefty, like, yeah. you know, data driven decision making and just things that you may not be familiar with? Oh, 100%. I think you learn by doing, ultimately. Uh At least I do. Like, I get so curious and I will be, you know, my day looks like I might work until 7 p.m. But then from 7 to 10, I'm listening to podcasts. I'm taking online courses. I'm going back through our box, which is like our Google Drive folder. And I'm accessing like old resources where I can review P&Ls for competitive companies, et cetera. So I'm getting this like very roll up your sleeves, sort of like in the weeds look at the industry. And I think part of that is like, I got lucky in the sense that I landed at a company that valued my unique perspective and isn't getting in my way in terms of learning and exploring the other sides of the business. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really important too, like finding the right people to work with. But being not too proud to sign up for an online course. Yes. You have to you have to have a curious mind. You have like, to. The minute you're like, well, I know everything or like uh, it's too late for me to learn. These are like on two different sides of the like, you know, the gamut. But yes. you have to have a learner's mindset where you're like, no, I don't know everything. And there's always time to learn. I think that's what just makes someone very successful at the end of the day. I agree. And think about it, too, the way that you approach hobbies. Like the older we get, I'm finding myself like so uncomfortable being bad at something. Yes. And I'm like, why the fuck do I feel like that? I am. This is before I got pregnant, but I wanted to do my sommelier's license. Just do the first level because I'm like, I can bullshit my way through a wine list at a restaurant, but I don't know what I'm actually getting. I want to know. Yes. And like, where's the shame in that? Or I used to ride horses when I was young. Going back into that, I never got good at ballet. I was like, love the idea of ballet. I started taking ballet classes earlier this year. Like, that's 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 like how you're supposed to be. Like, I did the same. Like, I took ski lessons. Like, I I learned (gasps) to ski like two years ago. Like, I was 30 when I started to learn how to ski. And yes, it's scary. And yes, it's more challenging because you know your body just you know, you're, you're scared. Like when you're older, you're, you're scared, higher from right? the ground. Exactly. Too. No, you really are. So from a practical standpoint, like it's yeah. harder to like learn skills when you're older. But I think that constantly being curious and trying to do different hobbies and learn in different capacities, I think it keeps your mind really nimble. Yeah. And it, it, it like does. scientifically, I believe it's also really good for neuroplasticity. So I think it's it's really important that we don't get set in our ways as we get older. Oh, 100 percent. I don't I wish I knew more about neuroplasticity, too, because mm-hmm. I think that there is such a positive aspect of like every day. There are two things I tell myself. The first is I need to learn something new today. I Whether love that. It sounds so cheesy, but it's like if you're not learning something new, it, whether it's about yourself, whether it's about someone you love, mm-hmm. whether it's about your work or your career, then like what are you doing with your life ultimately? It's just so stagnant otherwise. And I found myself like falling into that pattern. So ultimately like to push myself out. It's like get uncomfortable with something, learn something new. And then the other thing is is obviously just like you can only do what you can do today. And if you do that to the best of your ability, then you're setting yourself up for tomorrow to be able to do it again to the best of your ability. And I think it's like if you look at your life in bite-sized chunks and I've looked at my career this way, 
it's so much more manageable than looking at someone like my 10-year, 11-year career thus far and saying, well, she got there. Like, I want to expedite that. I, I love that you say this because I think we put so much pressure on ourselves. And it, it's like, I think this is, you know, it speaks to this myth of the overnight success where someone yes. sees someone who's like at X point in their career and you're like, oh, damn, like I want to get there. And th- there's nothing wrong with that. We can all aspire to get there, but we just can't get there tomorrow. Yeah. You know, like we can work to get there. And I reflect on my own life. Right. And I'm like, damn, like so much shit has happened in the last four years, even since we started Array. Like this is not stuff I would have known in the first year, you know, like you can only do, you're right, what you can do today and you do it to the best of your ability and you constantly stay curious and you try to learn as much as you can and you try to improve. That's it. That's all we can do. Yes. I love that. So I know that you said that you have like, you know, you're constantly listening to podcasts, reading. What are some resources that people can turn to in order to learn about this stuff? Yeah. I mean, podcasts like this are, I mean, I think Dear Media just does an amazing job in terms of like offering a very diverse set of perspectives and experiences where you can kind of like find what you're looking for. I'm weird with podcasts. I tend to search by guest. So Mm. I'll get like obsessed with somebody and then I'll listen to five of their episodes. And that's kind of like how I dig into an industry. I got like very into crypto during COVID and I'm still like not to make everyone hate me, but I'm still like bullish on blockchain technology, especially as it relates to like consumer loyalty. But with that being said, like when I got really into crypto, I was like, I'm obsessed with Katie Hahn. And I just listened to everything that Katie Hahn had ever spoken about or done. And that Mm -hmm. was sort of like my crash course in finding the resources in order to get into that space. I think searching by human is a really, it's the most simple way to get like very specific resource access that you're looking for. So that's my first. Wall Street Oasis has been an amazing resource for me. I talk about this all the time. I'm not affiliated in any way. God, I wish I was. I've spent so much money on their courses. But at the end of the day, like taking an online course, it might not be the most engaging or the most fun. But again, back when I was drinking, I could have a glass of wine and like go through and do my modeling course. And it didn't feel that, that painful. And I felt like I was accomplishing something. And again, I have resources at my fingertips where I can cross-reference that to real life scenario. And I think that's where it's like, it's been able to embed so much faster in my brain. And then weirdly, I'm very weird about books. I love like dark academia fiction. I am not like a career hack your life kind of girl. When I think about like reading, Mm -hmm. I purely do it for like my love of linguistics and language and storytelling. And I think having an outlet, this ladders back to just like the idea of like being okay as an adult with doing something that isn't going to make you skinnier and isn't going to make you richer. Like when's the last time you did something just for fun? Yes. So I try to do that too. You know, I I think what you're saying is insanely important because the thing is that I used to put a lot of pressure in myself earlier on in my career to always be reading things that were productive, you know, like yes. listening to business podcasts and just reading purely business books and self improve And I still do that. Yeah. But at night, I will sit down with my Kindle and I talk about this all the time where I have to bookend my day and I bookend my day by tuning 
out of everything that's happening in my life and tuning into a piece of fiction that brings me so much joy. Like, remember when we were at that dinner and Sophie was like, I read all the Harry Potter books. The way I went home and downloaded all seven books that very night and I read every single one and the joy that it brought me, like, it's like, it's just, it is productive. It's productive because we can't always be on. And I always think that, when it comes to fiction, fiction reading, it's actually really important because it helps us understand also like plot lines and relationships in a different yeah. kind of way. A thousand percent. And you get access to so many different perspectives and even just like syntax. Like I love learning new ways that people are using words. I'm reading a book called The Secret History right now by mm-hmm. Donna Tartt, and it is so good. But every time I go through... Wasn't she the one who wrote Goldfinch? Is that Donna Tartt or am I crazy? I actually don't know. Have you read that book? I actually haven't. Oh, great. Adding that to my list. Yeah, it is Donna Tartt. It is. You will love it. Okay. It's very dark. It kind of set me... Like, it set me down a depressive path for like a few days afterwards. But I feel like it's up your alley. (laughs) Probably. Yeah. Not that we need any more depressives in the world these days. But yes, yes. Probably It's it's actually a brilliant book. So I think you'd enjoy it because I think she has like a very specific way of writing. But tell me about this book. No, no, no. This is exactly it. I'm like, I'm early into it. I'm less than halfway through. Mm -hmm. But it's... It's I'm reading it specifically because I love the way she strings together sentences and I like to geek out on that. So finding something that for some people it's watching Gilmore Girls or like watching old reruns of Friends. Like for me, it's dark academia books. Yeah. yeah, Put Goldfinch on your like literally done list list next because it's really, really good. You always have the best book recommendations. Thank you. You need to start. I want to see like a highlight. I just want to go through and read all of Sif's books. Honestly, I I love reading. So when when I was younger, like, you know, like kids watch TV and in my household, it was just a lot of reading and like we talk about books a lot. And so it's just like a habit that's kind of been ingrained in me. And so when I was in college, you kind of lose that like reading for pleasure habit because you're just like reading all these academic textbooks. And as soon as I left college, I kind of fell in love with it again. And I just like nothing brings me more joy. No, no. It's so funny. Nobody really knows this. But when I was really young, I used to read books under my covers with like a flashlight and I got so bad. Like my parents were worried that I wasn't sleeping. I'm very short. So maybe that's like what happened to me ultimately, that they literally went into my closet, took out all of my books. And that was my punishment. Wait, Kira, my dad had to do the same with me. And I swear because he'd be like, okay, like time to like go do things now. Like we're going out. And then I would go into the bathroom with my book and I sit there for three hours. Yeah. And so then he'd have to confiscate my books, which is like such a bizarre problem to have. But yes. like truly nothing brought me more joy when I was like, this is like kindred spirits. This I love is this. wild. Yes, we have the same brain and the same life. I love this. Our punishments oh were the same. Oh my God, so funny. is here and it is my personal favorite season when it comes to both the weather and the fashion. And of course, fall means that I am switching up my style, but 
not compromising on comfort. So I am all about walking everywhere. You guys know this. I'm a huge proponent of just making sure that you're getting your steps in throughout the day. So I have to make sure that my shoes are comfortable, functional, and go with all my outfits. Vionic has the best curated styles to get you ready for fall without compromising on comfort. My personal go-to style right now is the LED loafer. It has this like really cute gold hardware on it, the loafer does, and it's just like such a pop and it's very, very chic. So Vionic's exclusive Viomotion technology is what sets them apart. They began by revolutionizing medical orthotics and today they continue to use that science to engineer shoes that leave you feeling energized and confident all day long. They even offer a 30-day guarantee so you can wear your shoes, love them, or return them for a full refund within 30 days. It's really, really easy. It's very risk-free. And from my personal experience, I don't think you would ever end up returning them because they're like little pillows for your feet. They're so, so comfortable. So Vionic has an offer for you guys. You're going to use the code DREAMBIGGER15 at checkout for 15% off your entire order at www.vionicshoes.com. When you log into your account, it's a one-time use only code, but it will not disappoint. Vionic Shoes, wearable well-being for your feet. So while you were kind of getting into private equity, were you also investing on the side? Because like how and how? Tell us everything. Yes. So I started angel investing just because, well, I'll back up first. I started taking equity in companies that I would advise. And I think that's a good place to start because it's like, for me at the time, it was it was like a training wheels, basically. I don't know a better way to Mm -hmm. describe it, where I could start to get access to and understand how companies grew and scaled and the impacts of my recommendations without having to put, you know, capital in before I really understood what I was doing. So my best advice to people who want to angel invest is like wrap your head around what your unique differentiated value add is and then package it up in a way that is like relevant to the brands that you want to support long term. So the one that you, you'd you want to invest in and then start to say like, I want to give you my time, my resources, my expertise in exchange for a tiny bit of equity because I want to understand like, there are tax implications for that. Like beyond just the fun part of getting equity, like how does it operate? How does it vest? How do you purchase shares? What are those tax implications? Like you should know that. And truthfully, I wish I knew it better before I started putting my own money into companies. So that's my first recommendation. And then I think from an investing standpoint, it was sort of like, it was kind of like a natural development where it got to the stage where I couldn't, bandwidth wise, continue to like provide the value through just an advisory standpoint. I didn't have enough time Mm -hmm. at the end of the day to be able to do what I wanted to do with these companies. So I started to say, okay, well, I'm going to put a a smaller check in and then I'm going to see how else I can add value. But at least I've already given you money in exchange for the equity so I can still be valuable, but it pulls some of the pressure off of my shoulders. Mm -hmm. And I think when I was in the stage of like when we were selling when we were selling power to court square 
I was also advising RX3 on building out their value add strategy. So my time was just like super lean. This was a way for me to like still do what I loved and learn what I wanted to learn in order to make that jump into RX3 that much more seamless, but in a way that, you know, I didn't want to kill myself. Yeah, totally. How does someone even go about finding these companies? Like, what was your process like? I think I'm privileged in the sense that, like, I've lived in the consumer world for nearly a decade at that stage. So these founders were people that they were my friends. They were people that I'd worked with previously. They were people who understood my brain, who understood my value and were seeking me out. So I know that's not like the best answer, but if you're going to get the most the most for your worth, I would say going that route where you show your value and then someone comes to you and says, I've seen your value. I want to leverage it. You're going to get the best possible outcome in those instances, more so ever than you could if you were pitching yourself to someone. So I'm a huge proponent of like democratizing access to resources and information and just like increasing exposure. And through doing that, like TikTok's a great example. I don't monetize my TikTok, but I love creating content when it fits within my schedule that is free and that in and of itself sort of like serves as a funnel, if you will, Mm -hmm. into like deal flow, both from an angel perspective, but also for the firm at a later stage. Were you angel investing even when you were just on the PR side? And I ask this because really, so here's what I find really interesting about you when, and I, like, I remember we met, like, I think when you were going through this acquisition or like fresh off of it. Right. And you struck me as someone who was so well-rounded. Like you weren't just someone like like a girl, like like a friend in PR, right? Like you were just very well-rounded and um, you you just seem like someone who can provide so much value to a company. Not seem, you are someone who can provide a lot of value. How, like when you were on the PR side and angel investing or like advising, like how did you start to like round out your experience and always have that like very, I guess, open-minded lens? Because my thing is that sometimes I'll speak to people in PR or any other industry, right? And their focus is so narrow. It's like, I'm right in the way that I do things. Whereas I think you're just a very curious person. You're constantly trying to like expand what you know. I think you t- you touched on it. It's like, you can't fake curiosity. You can't fake passion. And at the end of the day, if I'm like curious and passionate about the entire cycle of a company and the way that the consumer interacts with that company, like, yeah, duh, naturally, I'm going to be into Web3 and crypto when that's becoming a thing for consumer brands. Like, of course, I'm going to be into understanding like implications of AI on my category on this industry that I mm. love. Of course, it makes sense that I would say, well, I'm obsessed with this brand, but I want to be involved, involved. Mm -hmm. And there's one thing to say, like, yeah, I do PR for this company. Like, that was fun for me for a while. But agencies flip flop over time. There's no guarantee that you'll be with them long term. Like, if I really believe in a brand, I really believe in a founder, I want to put skin in the game to show them that I'm like obsessed with them Mm -hmm. and then add value. It's interesting because it's kind of like, I know the right answer to your question would be to say, I wanted to grow my returns. I wanted to make more money over time. I saw angel investing as an opportunity to take. No, but I don't think that that's the right answer at all. Like, I think that there has to be an element of like passion and curiosity. You're correct. Yeah, I, I think it's like for me, angel investing was sort of a means to an end of like me learning more, me getting more exposure 
and me like doubling down on the things that I believe in. Mm -hmm. And I still sort of approach it that way. It's funny because when I was, when we were in like sort of the NFT world, my husband would get mad at me all the time. He'd be like, you're buying NFTs. You're not investing in NFTs. And I would tell him, of course, I'm buying NFTs. Like this is, I'm just obsessed with the community. I'm obsessed with the culture. I'm obsessed with the project, their give back strategy, whatever. Like I would buy into the story and I wasn't looking at those purchases as like investments like so many people were. I was really just looking at them as like purchases and almost like my MBA in the category. And that's kind of how I approach angel investing. So you do a lot of things to kind of learn and immerse yourself into different industries. Like I remember when you were doing like when you were purchasing NFTs, like you were in like a like a group. I forget what it was. Oh, my gosh. But it was like for women who were in NFT. Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, my gosh. So many. Probably like a Discord channel. Yeah, it was like a Discord channel, but specifically for like it was like a group. It was like a curated group. And I, like, I see you do that. I see you talk about different newsletters that you're subscribed to. You obviously listen to podcasts. So do you structure your day so that you have time for this? Like, what is your process? Yeah. I mean, honestly, I'm I'm kind of at the stage where I like structure my week. And uh-huh. I feel like that's like my first step. And then my days can get better. I actually want your advice mm-hmm. on day structure because this is your expertise and I know it. But from a week standpoint, it's like, Mondays, I go down to the office. Usually our office is in Orange County. We share it with a quarterback trainer. So it's a very social day. Like mm-hmm. we're usually around a lot of the talent and celebrities that are invested in the fund. I don't really I, I try not to do calls or meetings during that time because people are just like constantly funneling in. So Mondays, I'm in the office. Tuesdays and Wednesdays, I try to batch all of my calls. So I will literally sit on Zoom until my eyes roll back into my skull, just like doing meetings And then on Thursday, I try to batch all of my in-person stuff. So interviews or just like general meetings that are in person, Mm -hmm. I try to keep those on Thursdays. And then on Friday, they're like my admin day. And that's the day where I go through my inbox and make sure it's cleaned out before the weekend to the best of my ability. It's been a very long time since I got to (laughs) inbox zero, but I try, film a couple TikToks, that sort of thing. And like, do you have time blocked in there for, okay, I'm going to take my time and like read a newsletter. Like this is my learning time. Like how do you schedule that in? I don't do a great job at it, honestly. Mm -hmm. What I do is I open tabs on my computer and I open tabs on my phone and I do the same thing with newsletters. I'll open them and pop them to the bottom of my screen. And then whenever I have free time, like if a meeting cancels or I have free time in between like my day-to-day schedule, I'll go through and like read those tabs. What I do after work is sort of like, I'm not great at turning off work work. So my laptop will be open until nine o'clock most days. Like if I don't have a dinner, I don't have an event, I don't have a meeting, I'm usually just on my computer. So I'll still be, unfortunately, reactively answering emails, but I do use that time to like clean up my tabs is sort Mm -hmm. of how I like to describe it. I think just putting everything at the bottom of my screen that I want to eventually read is like the best way for me thus far. But I know it's not. No, it's smart because sometimes like I will tell myself that I want to get to reading an article like I'm good with books, but then like there's so much just stuff on the Internet that you can easily learn from. And I'm really not great at like, you know, actually getting to them. I like put it away, but I like this tab idea because it's in your face and you know you have to get to it. So that's kind of efficient. It. Yeah, it's sort of like my to do list in a way. But another there I know that there's an app and I'm going to have to come back to you on it. 
that like allows you to save stories for later. So you can like send it to yourself and it'll add it to a reading list, Mm -hmm. which is great. But then I start to think about like how overwhelming my reading list is going to get. And I'm like, can I even do that? So that could be a cool resource. And then something else that I'm obsessed with. Have you heard of Run? Run? R-E-N. No. It's like an AI tool Uh that basically like pulls relevant news articles for people in your life. So it scrapes your LinkedIn. It scrapes your email. I know there's like the privacy components. But like for me, this is hugely valuable. Uh And then it'll basically give me like a daily newsletter of all of the relevant stories that mention those people or those companies. Okay, this is genius. I'm going to look at it immediately. That's fantastic. It's like the best way to keep your brain around like what's happening for the people that you care about in your life or even your business contacts or whatever. So I've been also like reading through that and that just collects it for you. Wow. I love that. Okay. I want to talk about how you evaluate a brand. Like currently, what are characteristics that like, you know, kind of pique your interest or you think that brands are doing extremely well? Okay. I think just in general, I think about brands. And again, like when we're investing from RX3's perspective, we're looking at that like three to five X and three to five years that we're underwriting to. When I'm investing from an angel standpoint, I think about like a 10-year life cycle, which is probably dramatic. It's probably less, but I like to think about that timeline in terms of like ultimate liquidity. That being said, when I look at companies, I have to think about what the consumer is going to want in three to five years. If I don't think like that, then the company is not going to be where they need to be in order to service that consumer. Mm -hmm. So from my standpoint, there are two things. And that is content and community. A brand that does an incredible job at content and storytelling will win in three to five years. A brand that knows how to build and sustain community will win in three to five years. Can you give us case studies or like examples of brands that you are really loving and you think are really strong in those two areas? Yeah, I think that all of the brands underneath the like Julie Starface blip sort of realm do an incredible job with content. I do believe that that category is going to expand and that consumer brands are going to this is very like idealistic, but I do believe that consumer brands are going to start hiring from production houses and from television and from videography. Oh, for yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's actually very important. And I see that's where the world is going. For key positions. Agreed. Yeah, 100%. I love that you think like that, too, because I think that that's like those brands are a great example of just like storytelling through content and sort of like taking the stigma out of a lot of different industries through education that doesn't feel like education. Mm -hmm. So those are a good example. I mean, I think Array is always my case. Array and Set Active, you guys are my case studies in terms of like community. Nobody does it better in terms of like valuing their community to the same extent that you might value like a media relationship or an influencer relationship. And I think consumers are getting to the point where they're like tired of you investing so much in building your relationships with influencers who don't give a shit about you Yes. versus me who yes. is spending my hard-earned money on whatever the brand is. So it's really interesting that you say this because from day one, we've always said treat our customers like influencers. And what's happened through the life cycle of our company, especially with the rise of TikTok, is that everyone has become an influencer. And I've been saying this for years because, you know, even pre-TikTok, even pre-Instagram and all of that, right? 
who would you take recommendations from? It was your best friend. It was your mom. And all TikTok has done is it has given you access to these like non-influencer influencers. You know what I mean? Totally. And it's just like if brands don't respond to that changing landscape and devalue their influencers and put influencers and celebrities and all of these VIPs, quote unquote, and don't include their customers in that VIP segment, I'm like, what? What are you what are we doing here? A hundred percent. It's also like the categories that I'm interested in have shifted because of this. So yeah. I'm also like I'm looking at the commerce enablement and like creator economy companies that are a little bit more on like the data and tech side, but are fulfilling this need for like an influencer who is not a full time influencer who ha- who has a career or perspective outside of just like generating content. And I think that that in and of itself is going to be like the future of influencing as a whole. When you look at how influencers have been able to operate thus far, like they've been able to get what they need to get paid out of the brands that they partner with in order to make ends meet or perform really well. And I think that that is amazing and brands are continuing to invest in influencer. I don't think that that will slow. But budgets are going down and influencers are starting to do more deals in order to be able to meet the same marks that they've been meeting in prior years, how much money they've made. So you start to think about how that conflates across like your Instagram, your TikTok, your platforms, where the consumer is now being inundated with ads. The future in my mind is like an influencer who has equity stakes in companies. Yes who has an incredible affiliate program and a consumer or a follower that trusts their every statement. And that doesn't mean they're the biggest influencer. I could not agree more. And I think like an example of this is for us, like Lauren, who's a skinny confidential, Lauren Bostic, she's a really good friend and she's an influencer, sorry, an investor in the brand, right? And we brought her on quickly because she was interested. She wanted to have skin in the game and we were more than happy to have her be a part of that, you know? And I think that from a brand's perspective as well, I think given the changing landscape and the economy and all of these different things, the reason brand budgets are going down is because everyone kind of has to be aware of ROAS, okay? And influencer falls under that category. Like we have to calculate what our overall channel metrics are. And yes, like we bring on some influencers who are like more quote unquote billboards. Sure. But like by and large, if people aren't bringing in ROAS, I can't justify that. Like it, I I don't want to burn money while growing my business. It's not a viable business proposition. No. And I think as we're moving towards this, this world where the pendulum is starting to like regulate, where growth at all costs is no longer the move, but also like sustainable profitable growth is sort of the target that 100% has to be. I think where you get into dangerous territory, and I'm curious about your perspective on this too, is like, I was just talking to a bunch of other investors about the way that marketing spend is allocated. Mm -hmm. And obviously channels are becoming increasingly measurable. My mindset is sort of like, just because a channel is measurable doesn't necessarily mean it should be subject to that sort of measurement. Mm -hmm. But I think influencer is sort of outside of that category because ultimately like what's become of influencers is they are either sort of like a separating separating of like the milk from the cream. They're either becoming billboards and celebrities in their own right, or they're becoming an addition to your sales team. 
And that has to be like, as an influencer is building their business, they need to start to understand, okay, where am I going to fall? Yes. And how am I going to be able to service the brands that I work with across different categories? And I think that if an influencer is wanting to go down the like, you know, how can I bring in money for companies like like then affiliate is like a great route. And like, I don't know if you know what's going on with TikTok, for example, but they are pushing TikTok shop like crazy. Nish and um, our head of social was just in their office and affiliate on TikTok is the future. And it's bringing in millions of dollars. So it's like, why would we not put our attention there where already the consumer is ready to buy like this? Like I have never in my life seen such an engaged like consumer as as on TikTok. It is fascinating. Okay. I love to hear that you say that because it's so funny. It's like the process of TikTok shop makes so much sense in my mind. And I think it genuinely is like the next step in e-commerce. It's sort of like, we're not quite to live shopping, but it's like, how do we engage on social in-app and shop? So yes, a hundred percent aligned there. I feel like where it's been a little bit difficult for me to get over the hump with my brands is the caliber of company on TikTok shop thus far. How long is it going to take no, for it to be? It's it's just not there yet, Kira, yeah. right? Like, it's just not. And like when like Nish went into the office with um, our head of social, Claire, and they came back and they're like, you won't believe like <laughs> what's on there. And right now it's not the best, but they're pushing to get yeah. the coolest companies on there. That's why we were invited into their offices. What well, That's why we have, that you know, they're doing that. Th- th- like, and they're going to push for every cool brand that we know to get on there. And it's just a matter of time. Like yeah. I'm writing it down right now because knowing what they're doing, you can't avoid it. You can't avoid it. And all of my friends who are brand owners, they're all starting to pay attention and they're all starting to get set up because yes, right now it's like early days, but you know, like things are cringe when it's early. Like, do you remember the early stages of TikTok? I don't even want to think about it. Like as like a creator, it was, I can't eat, like it was, it was, it was cringe. Yeah. I couldn't partake. But now I think I did one dance video. I really hope I took that down. Oh my gosh. I don't I don't think I ever did because I didn't have the hand eye coordination. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. So I feel like percent. it's the same thing that like right now, yes, quality of brands is not it, but it will get there. Yeah. I like with the effort that they're putting behind it and also just how consumers are behaving. Like right now. I had a video on TikTok go viral, okay? And the number of questions I started to get on like things that I was wearing and I would direct them to the link in my bio and I was looking at like yes. my, like like what I was doing in like just sales, like people buying and I was blown away and I was like, this is an additional step. They're having to go to the link in my bio where they have to go externally. Yeah. Whereas if it's in shop, it's integrated and it's one click. And think about it too, because even like a like to know it, that is literally three steps. Every time I open like to know it, it takes me to another page. It takes me to another page. And I'm like, what is this? I know. I think ShopMy is like the next sort of that type of a platform Mm -hmm. for that role. But yes, I think like in platform social shopping is a thousand percent the future. I just want to see it done in like an elegant way. And I think it's going to take brands like you guys to be able to come in and say like, we can do this in a way that isn't like tummy tuck leggings. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Wow, what a tangent. <laughs> yeah. How do we get on tummy tuck leggings? We just we just oh. got here. Okay, real quick, I have a couple of audience questions. Ooh. Fun. Okay. So the first one is, how do you do it all now that you're about to be a mom? 
That is a great question. (laughs) I feel like you just adapt to what you have to do in a day. I think like at any stage of your life, you just sort of like you have to use the 24 hours that you have in a way that is most efficient for you. Mm -hmm. So again, it comes back to like when I wake up in the morning, I think, okay, this is what my day looks like. I'm going to do everything to the best of my ability. If I'm 10 minutes late to record with Sif, then I'm going to text her and apologize and be like, this is the best I can do. And be like, but but it's also like being okay with that being okayness, not being okayness. Yeah. That's sort of like the first thing. I think the other is like, I'm honestly really struggling to like get to a stage where I feel like I'm going to care about being a mom as much as I care about my career. And it's been like a very interesting mental debate (laughs) where it's like, I love what I do for work. I love the people that I get to be around. I love my friends. I love my colleagues. I love that so much. How am I going to be able to top that just by birthing a human? And I know that sounds wild to people who have birthed humans. So someone please slide into my DMs and tell me that this is okay. But it's like, can your heart grow to have two kids? It's kind of like, can my heart grow to be as good of a mom as I am at my career? So it's ongoing. I love that you talk about this, though, Kira, because it's it's fucking real. You know, like this is like this is real life thoughts, you know, and I don't think people talk about it enough. And, you know, I'm not pregnant, but at some point, you know, like I think we want kids. Right. And I ask myself that question all the time where I'm like, will I ever be ready Will, like, will I ever be ready? Because I'm not ready right now. And I feel like Array is my child and yeah. I love the life that I have. And to bring something else into the mix, it just, it seems insane. And I just don't even know if I have the emotional bandwidth for it. I totally get it. I think it's kind of like your world has to expand. For me, my world has had to expand to just like allow myself to be pregnant and be happy being pregnant. Yeah. And then once we have her, my world is going to have to expand in order to be happy to like have her involved in my life. Yeah. And help her grow hers. So it's it's crazy. I That's a really good question because I don't have a good answer. Well, I mean, it's, it's a pretty good answer. It's, it's a real okay. answer. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's the truth. Okay. Second question, and this is the last one we have time for, is can you share tangible tips on breaking into the VC space as a brand marketer for D2C brands? Oh, my God. Yes. Okay. So I actually just did a TikTok on this. So I'm going to try to remember what I said because I really thought through the visual. I think step one is sort of like reverse engineering where you want to end up. And this is something that I got lucky with. But again, in retrospect, I would have loved to be more strategic about it. As a marketer, you have special skills, like the way the way your brain operates, the way you understand the consumer landscape, understanding how you want to apply those skills and where you want to apply those skills in a company at a different stage is key. So what I mean by reverse engineering is like know the category you're obsessed with and then know the stage that you want to add value. Are you more of an early stage investor where it's a little bit more of like a qualitative consideration versus late stage private equity. It's like extremely quantitative. For me, I just veered a little bit earlier. And then once you have those kinds of like core understandings of like where you want to sit, build a list of your top 20 to 30 brands and then look at who led the rounds for those brands at like the seed series A, series B, wherever you want to exist stage. Mm -hmm. And voila, you have your list of however many firms that are a perfect fit for where you want to exist, the companies you want to work with, 
and how you want to add value. So that's like step one is just like know your target so you can aim somewhere. The second one, I mean, this isn't as easy, I would say, but I I do think it's really important. Like be okay being polarizing and putting yourself out there. I think what I've realized is the more of an opinion you have on an emerging category or within a certain landscape that you're passionate about, the more people are going to seek you out for that opinion and perspective. And it doesn't mean that everybody is going to love you or everybody is going to resonate with your content or that you are going to be right. But at the end of the day, it's sort of like your students will find you in a way. So being okay with like what you're obsessed with and then talking about it and being vocal about it is like the best way to just like open the universe's door so that people can start coming to you. I think those are probably like my two tips is like put yourself out there, be super strategic, and then also like reverse engineer where ultimately you want to end up. Love. Kira, this has been so much fun. We could keep talking forever. Tell everyone where they can find you. Oh my God. I feel like this every time we have a conversation. <laughs> just on Instagram, I'm at Kira McKenzie. And then on TikTok, I'm at Kira McKenzie. Amazing. We have to do a part two. This was really fun. This is so fun. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening. If you loved the episode and feel like it brought you value, don't forget to rate the show and leave a review. It takes five seconds and really helps the show grow so I can keep bringing on awesome guests. If you want to follow me behind the scenes, you can find me on Instagram at Sif And don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss a thing. I drop new episodes every Tuesday, so come hang with me and shoot the shit with some really smart people, learn and unlearn, and have a lot of fun. See you next week. note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this episode.